I encourage you to turn in it to Galatians chapter 2. And uh, we get to hear good news today from God's Word. Let's bring us up to speed on where we're at. Paul's letter to the Galatians is a defense of the gospel, the good news that God delivers us through Jesus from the present evil age. And uh, that involves forgiveness of sin and the right standing with God and a renewed future in a, in a world to come. And this is all given us uh, who put our faith in Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. So last week we saw how the Apostle Peter was not living in the truth of that gospel. Peter was a Jewish man by birth and culture, and now he was a follower of Jesus and an apostle. But he visited Paul's church in Antioch, where Jewish and non-Jewish or Gentile Believers were all doing life together and eating together, having a lot of unity, and uh, he joined into that at first, but then under pressure from other Jews that came over, he uh, separated, he pulled away from eating with the Gentiles, and by doing that, he communicated by his actions that if you want to be right with God, if you want to be a member of his community, you need more than faith in Jesus Christ, you also need to conform to the external standards of the law that God gave to Moses, things like circumcision and food laws and so forth. And so that action wasn't in step with the truth of the gospel. So Paul called him out on it. He said, Peter, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We know that's not the path that leads to salvation. It's faith in Jesus, not faith plus conforming to standards. This morning, the passage takes us deeper into the truth of the gospel. So would you follow with me as I read God's word, beginning Galatians 2.15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us this morning and that you are present to bless us, to do us good. And we ask that you would open up our ears to hear and our hearts to believe 
all the good things that you've shown us through Christ and in this passage. We ask you to do that because there are many competing messages in the world drawing our attention to other hopes, but there is only one gospel. So open up our eyes and our hearts to it again today. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's not uncommon for a Christian person to still have doubts about where they stand with God on a day-by-day basis. You might have questions. Is it really well with my soul? Is God really for me? Does He accept me completely, or is there something more that I need to be doing to get that? Is there some level of holiness that I have to reach in order to be sure that God of the universe will look with favor on me and he'll help me in this life and give me eternal life? We have questions like that. Centuries ago, John Bunyan, who was the author of Pilgrim's Progress, he felt that way, though he had put his trust in Christ. He said this about his early years, that scripture gave me hope namely Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Yet, I was grievous afraid that he should and found it exceeding hard to trust him, seeing I had so offended him. It was with me as it was with Joseph's brethren. The guilt of their own wickedness did often fill them with fears that their brother would at last despise them. How is it with your soul this morning? Can you relate to John Bunyan? You may be a believer in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, but you might still also have this keen awareness of your failings to follow him. Do you ever wonder whether at the last, at the end of your life, God will despise you for that? Do you have recurring concerns about whether there is something yet for you to do, to be sure of his love and his promise never to leave or forsake you. If that's you at all, Galatians 2 has good news for you this morning, and the Lord wants you to put those fears to rest. Or you may be a person who feels pretty good about yourself. You feel like you're doing what you need to do in order to be acceptable to God. So you're not concerned about the afterlife or you're standing with God, maybe don't even know if he exists, but you're very sure that you're a good person and that a good person like you really doesn't have anything to worry about. If that's true, Galatians chapter 2 is here to change your mind about that and tell you some bad news so that you can believe the good news instead. Either way, the Lord is speaking to us that we should put our hope for life in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. So let's turn our attention to what he's telling us. Paul starts with what was common knowledge to himself and to Peter and to the church of Antioch and to the Galatian churches until their ideas got corrupted by Peter's bad example and other teachers coming in with bad gospels. But it used to be common knowledge. We know this, uh, he said. So what was it that they knew? What was the, the real gospel? Verse 16 sums it up. 
we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what was common knowledge. That's what Paul taught. To be justified, what does it mean? It means to be declared righteous before God. It means it's a legal state where God considers us as having met all of his righteous requirements for how we should live. It means you meet his standards. It means you're considered as having done everything right exactly as God intended you to do. That's what it means to be justified. Now, that isn't the natural state of anybody here or anybody outside of here. If we're honest with ourselves, we know we haven't done everything right 24-7 all of our lives. Anytime that your conscience tells on you, every time your conscience says you, you shouldn't have done that or you shouldn't have said that, that's a divinely implanted warning system that reminds us we aren't righteous. We're doing things wrong. Justification is the process by which unrighteous people are forgiven their sins and counted as righteous before God. And if that happens to you, if you're counted righteous, what happens is it opens up a world of God's blessings to you. In this life, it means you can claim all of God's promises to the righteous. For example, Psalm 34, 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Does that sound like something you would want? Do you have any troubles that you'd like to be delivered from? God says, I promise I will deliver you from those troubles. Maybe not completely in this life, but there's a life to come where it will be complete. You won't have that trouble that you have now. You'll never see it again. I promise that to the righteous. And you can say, that's me if I'm justified, if I've been declared righteous. I can claim that. And in death, Here's something amazing that's waiting for the righteous. Jesus said in the parable of the sheep and the goats, the righteous will go away into eternal life. To them, God the Son will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's a glorious kingdom awaiting as an inheritance. You belong there. It's been created for you to enjoy. Jesus will be there, and it will be uncorruptible forever, and you'll be a part of that. He says, the righteous get that. And if you've been declared righteous by God, that's yours. That's a promise. That's a guarantee. That's what happens after death. A world of blessings are open to you for the justified. Now, here's the deal, though. Here's the unexpected way we get into this state of justification, of being counted righteous. A person is not justified by works of the law, 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you get there. In other words, you won't be counted righteous by keeping commandments, even God's own commands for righteous living. Rather, you will be counted righteous if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And in case you missed it the first time, Paul says it again in verse 16. We are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's three times in that verse he says, the works of the law will not make you righteous before God. And these are God's laws. Whoa. You better say that three times because that doesn't sound right. (laughs) But it is right. What you get justified by is faith in Christ or through that. Now, I think we can see this has got to be explored and expanded on um, because that just doesn't make sense to us naturally. How can you be counted righteous unless you do righteous things? Uh, how, can it, how can you have a legal status that's conferred on you simply by faith? Well, the churches that Paul was writing to, they began to wonder those things themselves. Uh, it used to be common knowledge, but now they're not so sure because other teachers are saying, ah, but you also have to be circumcised. Ah, but you also have to not eat pork and so forth. That was what they were dealing with. For them, they were wondering, do we need to keep all the commandments that God gave to Israel, God's covenant people? Maybe we do need to get circumcised. Maybe we do need to keep the Sabbath. Maybe we do need to observe feasts and so on. And then if we do that, then we'll be counted righteous. Then we can be in right relationship with God, and all these promises will be ours. That was what they were dealing with. For us today, it might look a little different. We might think, well, I'm not really worried too much about whether I eat pork or I'm not keeping, like, the Passover or what other other holidays. I'm not really interested in all the circumcision stuff. We might say, well, that's not my deal, but what about the New Testament commands and principles? Maybe I have to keep all of those things to be righteous in God's sight. Maybe I also have to speak edifying words. Maybe I need to give generously. Maybe I need to serve others. Maybe i got to keep going to church meetings, and then if I do all those things, I'll know I'm in a right relationship with God because that's what he requires. Those are all good and right things to do. God's commands are good and we should do them, but they don't justify us. They don't make us to be declared righteous. A person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. We can only be counted righteous through faith, not works, not even the works of God's own law. Here's a quick test to see how secure your belief is on that point. Are you less sure of God's love, acceptance, and promises when you sin than when you do something right? In other words, okay, I went to church today, I'm listening to a sermon, I read my Bible, Um, I'm probably loved by God. 
versus it's Monday morning, I'm really mad, I don't want to go to work, I just hate my coworkers. Well, that's not good. Um, I wonder, I better do something to get right with God again. Does that ever come across your mind? you ever have feelings like that? <clears throat> I'm not talking about feelings of remorse, which are re- appropriate when we sin. There should be sorrow over sin. There should be a turning to do what's right. But I'm talking about that nagging thought that because I did this wrong thing, God doesn't love me in this moment. He might leave me. He might forsake me. I'm going to have to do something to win back his acceptance. And if that thought is there, then what we believe in that moment is that we are counted righteous by works of the law and not by faith in Jesus Christ. For the person whose trust is in Jesus as the one who gave himself for your sins, even in the moment of your sin, God still loves you, still accepts you, will keep all of his promises to you. Why is that? Because his pronouncement, this pronouncement, that you're righteous is not based on what you do, it's based on who you trust. And that being Jesus Christ. And when that reality gets deep in your soul, it frees you to live securely in the love of God every day. And it makes obeying the Lord's commands a delight and not a duty. And we're going to come back to that later. But for now, let's follow Paul as he explains justification by faith in verses 17 to 21, because even though verse 16 is really clear, it's repeated a bunch of times, you're justified by faith and not works, uh, it's not immediately clear to us, well, how does that work, really? Okay, yeah, it's by faith, but like, how? (laughs) Why? (laughs) A little heads up here, verses 17 to 21 are going to take some mental work. Uh, to understand. One commentator said, this passage is one of the most difficult arguments to follow in Paul's letters, like all of them. (laughs) You don't like to read that when you're trying to preach a passage. (laughs) It's probably because in his urgency to address the wrong doctrine, the wrong gospel that was spreading in his churches that he planted, he had to get this letter out. He wanted to get this thing out. And so he wrote a little fast, and he got ahead of his audience, and he packed all these dense truths in the quick phrases that need a lot of slow unpacking to really get your head wrapped around it. But you know what? That's part of the inspiration of Scripture. God used real humans with real emotions in real settings to say things that he superintended and made sure this is my word. It is my very word, even though it has the, the imprints of a human on it. Amazing. All right. Well, because of the complexity, here's the approach I'm going to take. I'm going to summarize verses 17 to 21 as briefly as I can. And then after that, unpack three implications from it. So think of the next 10 minutes as like overview, you know, not every single phrase, but like summary statements about what Paul's saying, and then come back, I'm going to point to three things that we'll camp on that actually we can apply in our lives immediately.
Okay, that's how we're going to go. Okay, four statements, my attempt to clarify the verses 17 to 21. Uh, first one is this. It starts with an objection, a, punch, a potential objection. Wouldn't justification by faith lead to lawlessness? Okay, if you're, if you're justified by faith and not by works, wouldn't that mean I'd feel free to sin? Wouldn't it lead to lawlessness? So verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? In other words, I don't have to keep the law to be righteous, so why shouldn't I just have all sorts of fun and do all the sinful things that occur to me? Right? And that would make Christ a servant of sin. It's like he's giving me permission. I've got the green light. I can do whatever I want. That's the objection, and that's understandable. Um, why do some of the hard things that Scripture talks about when it doesn't improve your score on God's test? <laughs> Paul addresses the objection. He says, certainly not. That's, that's absurd. Justification by faith in Christ doesn't make him a servant of sin. Actually, it's the only way you can get a perfect record of obedience to God's demands. So how does that work? He continues, second statement. If you want to be justified by keeping God's laws, it will only expose your sin and condemn you as a sinner. So this is the problem with thinking I can get righteous by my works. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So what Paul tore down in his confrontation with Peter, for example, was justification based on keeping external standards like circumcision and food laws. If Paul were to reverse himself and go along with Peter with what he was doing, he'd be placing himself under the law again. He'd be saying, you really do need to keep the standards of the law to be justified. And here's why that's hopeless. It's because the standard is too high for us to keep. What is the greatest commandment according to Jesus? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So to keep that commandment, half-heartedness is not good enough. Inconsistency is not good enough. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength means 24-7, all in, all the time, love for God, love for neighbor that flows out of your love for God. Nobody's doing that. But that's the standard that we have to meet if we would be righteous. So we won't ever be declared righteous that way. Rather, the law just reminds us every day how sinful we are because we can't keep it fully. It proves me to be a transgressor. It doesn't give me life. So, what's the way forward? How can God declare you righteous when you'll never be righteous by your own works of the law? Here's what has, has to happen. Next statement. You need to die under the law's penalty for your sin 
and receive perfect righteousness of Jesus to be counted righteous before God. You need to die under the law's penalty, and then you need perfect righteousness from Jesus to be counted to you. And this is from verses 19 to 20. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, when you trust in Christ as the one who gave himself for your sins, two things happen. His death on the cross counts as your death for your sins because the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. That's the first thing that happens. The second thing is his perfect life counts as the life you lived. So God has decided to make faith in Christ the instrument by which believers are brought into a spiritual union with Christ that's so complete that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it was as if we had died on the cross for our sins. We died through the law and to the law. The law's penalty has been satisfied. It killed us. And also in that spiritual union, when Jesus lived the perfect life of righteousness, it was the same as if we had lived that perfect life of righteousness. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That means that the, the condemned under the law, you died, and you became a counted righteous in Christ you. When you believed. When God sees you now, he sees Christ in you. He sees his perfect righteousness in you. And on that basis, you are declared righteous. You are justified and the rightful recipient of all of his blessings. And contrary to leading us into more lawlessness, this justification by faith actually makes us live to God. It says, live a life devoted to God. Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, instead of trying to be justified by keeping God's laws, I now keep those laws because I know I am justified. And now I delight to do his will. I delight to live to God. And then Paul ends with one last statement. I'll just summarize it this way. If you seek to be justified by the law, you're saying Jesus didn't need to die for your sins. This is from verse 21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if you could have done it yourself, if you could have met God's standards by being a good person, you didn't need Jesus. Nobody needed Jesus. There was another way. You just do the stuff. You just do the right things, and you get to heaven. There's no need for Jesus. But because we can't do it good enough, because we can't meet the standard, God has to come in. God has to credit us with perfect righteousness because His standard is perfection. And we're not going to get that anywhere unless He has created a way in which we can receive it. 
And that way is through faith that I'm a sinner, but he's my Savior, and I need what he has. <laughs> That's how we get it. That's how we get declared righteous. Okay, now that was a lot of mental work. <laughs> so now we're going to pause a little bit here. We're going to slow down, and I'm going to just list three implications for our lives from what we just heard. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, this isn't just something that we're going to trot out for some theology exam. It's not just information. It's not just, okay, good, I know how that works now. It's God's gift to us. It's things that are true for the believer that if we could really embrace it and feel the good of it, we are different people. So let's see what the implications are, three of them. The first one is this. God's laws no longer have power to condemn you. God's laws no longer have power to condemn you. This is the result of having died to the law, of having been crucified with Christ. If you've died to the law, then it no longer has the authority to condemn you for noncompliance because its demands have been fulfilled. Its punishments have been carried out. The, the condemned by the law you was killed. The, the law is satisfied. Justice has been served on you, except that it was in Christ. But because you're united to him by faith, his death counts for yours. So let me think of two, two illustrations about this to try and get in, into that. One is in Romans 7, where Paul says that your relationship with the law is like the relationship of a widow to her former marriage vows. Okay, so she was married, her husband died. What's her relationship now to the vows she made? Well, while her husband was alive, she had to not live with another man. Otherwise, she would be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she can remarry, she can live with another man, because her marriage vows to the first man no longer condemn her for doing that. The penalty no longer applies. That's what your relationship to God's laws is like as a believer in Christ. It can no longer condemn you if you don't keep it because it already has. You already died. You were killed. And now a new person is born. A different person. One who has Christ's righteousness. So you're still going to feel the pangs of conscience when you don't do the law and you'll want to change, but you aren't condemned because Christ was condemned and you were condemned in Christ. Here's another illustration. Suppose you enter military service and you serve your time for however many years and then you're honorably discharged. No longer a soldier. And one day you go back on base and you see your sergeant, your former sergeant, and uh, he gives you a command, you know, private, do this. And like your, your knee-jerk reaction is, yes, sir. And, 
And you're about to do it, and then you wait a minute. I'm not in the army anymore. <laughs> I've, been, I've been honorably discharged. I have fulfilled all that I need to do for the military. So I don't need to do what the sergeant's telling me. That's our relationship with the law. Jesus already did everything that God's law demands to be done. He actually did and does love the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and strength and his neighbor as himself. And now by faith, that perfect record has been credited to you as if you've already done everything that you needed to do for God. Now there's nothing more you need to be doing to be counted righteous if that's true. And if that sounds way too free, if that sounds like it makes Christ a servant of sin, now you're getting to really feel the freedom of the gospel. You cannot be condemned when you've already been condemned and you already have the record of having done it perfectly. It's in the bank. You receive that by faith. Okay, second implication. You are as acceptable to God as Christ himself. Let that sink in. You are as acceptable to God, this is for believers, right now and forever, you are as acceptable to God as Christ himself. That's the implication of the reality that Christ lives in me. If Christ lives in you, which he does by faith, it means you are in union with Jesus in such an unbreakable bond that his life counts as your life. His perfect righteousness is legally your righteousness. So when God looks at you, he sees someone who has been delivered from sin and who is clothed in perfect righteousness. Christ's own righteousness. And that's why you are as acceptable to God as Christ is, because you have his righteousness. You meet the standard. What God says to Jesus at his baptism in the Jordan River, he says to the believer, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's his attitude towards every believer. Well pleased. This is, has been illustrated as, with the analogy of a marriage. So a wealthy and powerful man seeks out a bride. And he finds a poor woman who has enormous debts. She can never begin to repay him. She's at the mercy of her creditors and she has no means, no recourse to get herself out of the deep financial hole that she's in. But the wealthy man takes compassion on her, loves her, marries her. And when he does that, legally, her debts become his and his wealth becomes hers. That is what happens between Jesus and his bride, the church. Our extreme debt for our disobedience becomes his and he pays for it with his life on the cross. And his perfect righteousness, his wealth, 
becomes ours with all of its attending blessings from God. That is grace. One last implication of this passage, and it has to do with what we will do as a result of these realities. Three, now you can live by faith in Jesus and not trust in your performance. This is what propelled Paul to do all that he did for Christian mission on earth. I mean, he was a church planner. He was traveling all the time. He got beaten. He got stoned. He was always facing trouble. He was thrown in prison. Eventually, he was executed. What made him do all that? He said, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It was personal. There's a real Savior who really died for me for the purpose of giving me what I can't get by myself. Perfect righteousness. At the cost of his life, he did it. That's, that's love. That's personal. That's not just information. It is a real gift. And if that's what God has done for me, oh boy, then I'm free to go and, and tell some people about that so they can enter into it too. I want to live in the good of that. I don't want to be every day thinking i got to do this because if I don't, God is going to be not, he's going to be not for me. I don't want to live that way. I know he's for me. The cross tells me He's for me and that He has saved me. He has delivered me from my sin. He has given me everything I need. I am declared righteous. So I'm going to live in the good of that. I'm going to be free to go into the world without fear of what God is thinking because I already know what He's thinking. He loves me like He loves His own Son. And I cannot lose all His blessings. So I don't have to worry about that. Now I can just go and tell people. Now I can go share the joy. Now I can bring other people into it with me. And if they beat me, well, that's okay. That's all part of what God has in his great wisdom for me. But I know he loves me, and I know where I'm going. It doesn't lead to more sin. Why would we want to sin? Why would we want to do the things that Jesus died on the cross to pay for? No, we don't want to do that. We want to live in the freedom of God's good and perfect and acceptable will because it is right. But not because we have to, but because we want to. And it is good. Christ wants us to live in the flesh amazed and grateful and confident in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. That is real liberation and that is the power for a godly life. I quoted from John Bunyan at the beginning, and I want to close with how his battle with condemnation and doubt ended. What was that moment of transformation for him that compelled him to preach? And he also was imprisoned for preaching, and it was while in prison that he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Here's what happened. One day... 
as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, as my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness, for that was just before him. <clears throat> in other words, God, our righteousness is always before God in the person of Christ. With the nail-pierced hands. I also saw it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosened from my affliction and irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God, the laws, left off to trouble me. Now I went home also rejoicing for the grace and love of God. The Lord wants that experience for all of us. And we will when we have that revelation in our hearts like we just heard, if it really pierces us. May the chains of doubt and despair fall off our legs. May there be no exhaustion trying to make ourselves righteous before God. Jesus did it for us, received by faith. So now go and live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. It is still a work of the Spirit. It is a miracle, Lord, that we could understand this and grasp it, but it is a miracle that you do over and over and over again. Would you help us to see and feel and live out what Paul did? A fallen man like us, one time a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, and then transformed. And it was this this realization of Christ that did it. So Lord, reveal yourself in us as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing in response.